Hello, you are listening to the First Person Drunk Podcast. Today we have Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis, Chapter 13. First Person Drunk is brought to you by me, Miles Tabor, by the public domain, and by whiskey. Any errors in the text are, are the fault of one of those three things that I just mentioned, which is to say, me, the public domain, or whiskey. You, you get the idea. I seen the fella from the telephone exchange run down the street a little ways as the first rush hit the square and fired his pistol twice. Then he turned and made for an alleyway, but as he turned, they let him have it. He throwed up his arms and made one long stagger right across the bar of light that streamed out of the windows, and he fell into the shadow, out of sight, just like a scorched moth drops dead into the darkness from a torch. Out of the middle of that bunch of riders comes a big voice, yelling numbers instead of men's names. Then different crowds lit out in all directions, some on foot, while others held their horses, for they seemed to have a plan laid ahead. And then things began to happen. They happened so quick and with such a whirl, it was all unreal to me. Shots and shouts and windows breaking as they blazed away at the storefronts all around the square, and orders and cuss words ringing out between the noise of shooting and those electric lights shining on them as they tossed and trampled and showing up masked faces here and there and pounding hoofs and horses scream like humans with excitement and spurts of flame squirted sudden out of the ring of darkness round about the open place and a bulldog shut up in a store somewhere's howling himself hoarse and white puffs of powder smoke like ghosts that went a-drifting by the lights. It was all unreal to me, as if I had a fever and was dreaming it. That square was like a great big stage in front of me, and I laid in the darkness on my lumber pile and watched things like a show. Not much scared, because it was so darned unreal. From way down along the railroad track, they come a sort of blunted roar, like blasting big stumps out, and then another and another. Pretty soon, down that way, a slim flame licked up the side of a big building there and crooked its tongue over the top. Then a second big building right beside it catched a fire, and they both showed up in their own light, big and angry and handsome, and the light showed up the men in front of them too, guarding them, I guess, for fear the town would get its nerve and make a fight to put them out. They begun to light the whole town up as light as day and paint a red patch onto the sky that must have been noticed for miles around. It was a mighty purty sight to see them burn. The smoke was rolling high too and the sparks flying, and other things in danger of catching, and after a while, a lick of smoke come drifting up my way. I smelt her. It was tobacco 
burning in them warehouses. But that town had some fight in her, in spite of being took unexpected that way. It wasn't no coward town. The light from the burning buildings made all the shadows around them seem all the darker. And every once in a while, after the surprise of the first rush, they would come thin little streaks of fire out of the darkness somewheres and the sound of shots. And then a gang of riders would gallop in that direction, shooting up all creation. But by the time the warehouses was all lit up so that you could see there was no hope of putting them out, the shooting from the darkness had just about stopped. It looked like them big tobacco warehouses was the main object of the raid. For when they was burning past all chance of saving, with walls and floors a-tumbling and crashing down and sending up great gouts of fresh flame as they fell, the leader sings out an order, and all that is not on their horses jumps on, and they rides away from the blaze. They come across the square, not galloping now, but taking it easy, laughing and talking and cussing and joking each other, and passed right by my lumber pile again, and down the street they had come. You bet I laid low on them boards while they was going by and flattened myself out till I felt like a shingle. As I hearn their hoof sounds getting farther off, I lifts up my head again. But they wasn't all gone, either. Three, that must have been up to some particular deviltry of their own, come galloping across the square to catch up with the main bunch. Two was quite a bit ahead of the third one, and he yelled to them to wait. But they only laughed and rode harder. And then, for some fool reason, that last fella pulled up his horse and stopped. He stopped in the road right in front of me and wheeled his hoss across the road and stood up in his stirrups and took a long look at that blaze. Yuda said he had done it all himself and was mighty proud of it the way he raised his head and looked back at that town. He was so near that I hearn him draw in a slow, deep breath. He stood still for most of a minute like that, black again the red sky, and then he turned his horse's head and jabbed him with his stirrup edge. Just as the horse started, they come a shot from somewheres behind me. I suppose there was someone hid in the lumber piles where the street crossed the railway besides myself. The horse jumped forward at the shot and the feller swayed sideways and dropped his gun and lost his stirrups and come down heavy on the ground. His hoss galloped off. I heard the noise of someone running off through the dark and stumbling again the lumber. It was the feller who had fired the shot running away. I suppose he thought the rest of them riders would come back when they heard that shot and hunt him down. I thought they might myself, but... I laid there and just waited. If they come, I didn't want to be found running. But they didn't come. The two last ones had caught up with the main gang, I guess, for pretty soon 
I hearn them all crossin' that plank bridge again, and knowed they was gone. At first, I guessed the feller on the ground must be dead, but he wasn't, for pretty soon I hearn him groan. He had maybe been stunned by his fall, and was comin' to enough to feel his pain. I didn't feel like he oughta be left there, so... I clumb down and went over to him. He was lying on one side, all kind of huddled up. There had been a mask on his face, like the rest of them, with some hair onto the bottom of it to look like a beard. But now it had slipped down till it hung loose around his neck by the string. There was enough light to see he was nothing but a young fellow. He raised himself slow as I come near him, leaning on one arm and trying to set up. The other arm hung loose and helpless. Half setting up that away, he made a feel at his belt with his good hand as I come near. But that good arm was his prop, and when he took it off the ground, he fell back. His hand come away empty from his belt. The big six-shooter he had been feeling for wasn't in its holster anyhow. It had fell out when he tumbled. I picked it up in the road, just a few feet from his shotgun, and stood there with it in my hand, looking down at him. Well, he says in a drawly kind of voice, slow and feeble, but looking at me steady and trying to raise himself again. You can finish your little job now. You shot me from the darkness, and now you done got my pistol. I reckon you better shoot again. I don't want to rub it in none, I says, with you down and out, but from what I seen around this town tonight, I guess you and your own gang got no great objections to shootin' from the dock yourselves. Why don't you shoot, then, he says. It most certainly is your turn now. And he never batted an eye. Bo, I says, you got nerve. I like you, Bo. I didn't shoot you, and I ain't going to. The fella that did has went. I'm gonna get you out of this. Where you hurt? Hip, he says. But that ain't much. The thing that bothers me is this arm. It's done busted. I fell on it. I drug him out of the road and back of the lumber pile I had been laying on and hurt him considerable a-doing it. Now, I says, what can I do for you? I reckon you better leave me, he says, without you want to get yourself mixed up in all this. If I do, I says, you may bleed to death here, or anyway you would get found in the morning and be run in. You're mighty good to me, says he, considering you are no kin to this here part of the country at all. I reckon by yo talk, yo are one of them damn Yankees, ain't yo? Now, in Illinois, a Yankee is someone from the east, but down south, he is anybody from north of the Ohio, 
and through that there war was fought forty years ago, some of them fellas down there don't know damn, and Yankee is two words yet. But shucks, they don't mean no harm by it, so I tells him I am a damn Yankee, and asks him again if I can do anything for him. Yes, he says. Yo can tell a friend of mine, Bud Davis, has happened to an accident, and get him over here quick with his wagon to tote me home. I was to go down to the railroad track past them burning warehouses till I come to the third street, and then turn to my left. The third house from the track has got an iron picket fence in front of it says Bud, and it's the only house in that part of town which has Beauregard Peoples live there. He is kin to me. Yes, I says, and Beauregard is just as likely as not gonna take a shot out of the front window at me for luck before I can tell him what I want. It seems to be a kind of habit in these parts tonight. I'm getting homesick for Illinois, but I'll take a chance. He won't shoot, says Bud, if yo go about it right. Beauregard ain't going to be asleep with all this going on in town tonight. Yo rattle on the iron gate, and he'll holler to know what yo all want. If he don't shoot first, I says. When he hollers... Yo cry back at him, yo have found his old dead hoss in the road. It won't hurt to holler that loud, and that will make him let you within talking distance. His old dead hoss. Yo don't need to know what that is. He will. And then Bud told me enough of the signs and words to say and things to do to keep Beauregard from shooting. He said he reckoned he had trusted me so much he might as well go the whole hog. Beauregard, he says, belongs to them riders too. They have friends in all the towns that watches the lay of the land for them, he says. I made a long half-circle around them burning buildings, keeping in the dark, for people was coming out in bunches now that it was all over with, watching them fires burning and talking excited and saying the riders should be followed, only not following. I found the house, Bud meant, and there was a light in the second-story window. I rattled on the gate. A dog barked somewheres near, but I heard his chain jangle and knowed he was fast and I rattled on the gate again. The light moved away from the window. Then another front window opened quiet, and a voice says, Doctor, is that yo back again? No, I says. I ain't a doctor. Stay where you are, then. I got you covered. I am staying, I says. Don't shoot. Who are yo? A fella, I says, kind of sensing his gun through the darkness as I spoke, who has found your old dead hoss in the road. He didn't answer for several minutes. Then he says, 
using the words dead hoss as Bud had said he would. A dead hoss is fitting for nothing but to skin. Well, I says, using the words for the third time as instructed, it is a dead hoss, all right. I hear the window shut, and pretty soon the front door opened. Come up here, he says. I come. Who rode that hoss y'all been talking about, he asks. One of the silent brigade, I tells him, as Bud had told me to say. I give him the grip Bud had showed me with his good hand. Come on in, he says. He shut the door behind us and lighted a lamp again. And we looked each other over. He was a scrawny little fellow with little gray eyes set near together and some sandy-complected whiskers on his chin. I told him about Bud and what his fix was. Damn it! Oh, damn it all! He says, rubbing the bridge of his nose. I don't see how on earth I can do it. My wife's just had a baby. Do you hear that? And I did hear a sound like kittens mewing somewhere's upstairs. Beauregard, he grinned and rubbed his nose some more and looked at me like he thought that mewing noise was the smartest sound that ever was made. Boy, he says, grinning, born five hours ago. I've done named him Burley, after the Tobacco Association, you know. Yes, sir, Burley Peoples is his name, and he sure can squall, the darn little cuss. Yes, I says. You better stay with Burley. Lend me a rig of some sort, and I'll take Bud home. So we went out to Beauregard's stable with a lantern and hitched up one of his horses to a light road wagon. He went into the house and come back again with a mattress for Bud to lie on and a part of a bottle of whiskey. And I drove him back to that lumber pile. I guess I nearly killed Bud getting him into there, but he wasn't bleeding much from his hip. It was his arm giving him fits. We went slow, and the dawn broke with us four miles out of town. It was broad daylight, and early morning noises stirring everywhere. When we drove up, in front of an old farmhouse with big brick chimbleys built on the outside of it a couple of miles further on. You have been listening to the First Person Drunk podcast. This was Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis, Chapter 13, brought to you, as always, by me, Miles Tabor, Public Domain, and Delicious Whiskey. <laughs>